0: I didn't mean for it to turn out this way, but this past Sunday morning, I had the privilege of preaching on suffering. On why is it that we we suffer and how do we uh, view that? Tonight, although in a completely different series, we're going to look at kind of the other side of the coin that in the midst of whatever's happening in life, God is leading, God is working. And it's a very exciting topic to me because it's something that I've had the privilege of living for many decades. Many of you have as well. And so I want to ask you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5, and we're going to wade back into the waters of Ezra Nehemiah. Now, it's been some time since we've been here, so we're going to rev the engine slowly and get back up to speed. But before we do that, I want to consider for a moment Paul's tremendous statement to us as Christians in 2 Corinthians 5-7 that we walk by faith, not by sight. What does that mean? Well, in the context of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking that we, of the fact that we have courage in this life because of the great blessings coming our way in the next life, being at home with the Lord. We talked about that this morning. But there's a more general concept to which Paul is referring, and that is the idea of living the Christian life by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk by faith? What does it mean to live a life characterized by trusting in the work of God, trusting that he will do things yet unseen, uh, trusting that perhaps he'll work out things in a way that would have seemed impossible from a human standpoint? Well, the short answer to the question, what does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight, is the title of my message tonight, God Works Through Providence. That's the short answer. But rather than simply closing in prayer, I want to tell you why that's the answer. I want to use our text of Ezra 5 and most of Ezra 6 to give a two-part answer to that question. The two-part answer to that question, what does it mean to walk by faith, will be a simple simple set of a couple of answers. And we'll get to those in just a moment. We'll flesh out the answer that God works through providence. But I think we should get back up to speed with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We were literally in a different building the last time we were in this book. So we're going to rev the engine pretty slowly this evening and get back up to uh, understanding this book. It's a complex book. Once we do some preparation there, then we'll dive into Ezra five and six and see the two part answer to the question: What does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? So let's remind ourselves of the significance of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's is one long book which takes place over an, an historical period of one hundred and fourteen years, and so it's quite a quite a vast chunk of Israel's history. And we've called this entire series in Ezra and Nehemiah: "Great is Thy Faithfulness." Let's review why God's faithfulness is on display in Ezra Nehemiah. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history just to get revved up to speed here. God formed the nation of Israel when he rescued them out of Egypt with a purpose, and that was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to make God big in the world. Israel was to be the message of God to a watching world. And he had a destination for them. He had a place for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, Deuteronomy 6.3. But God didn't just randomly pick any nation to bless and to be the conduit of, of the knowledge of God to the world. It wasn't a random act. He formed this nation from one man, Abraham, and he made promises. Genesis 12, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And what goes with that nation? First, Land. Genesis 15, Genesis uh, 18, and so forth, gives the exact boundaries of the promised land. Genesis 15, 18 through 19, rather. The exact boundaries. This is not a, a theoretical, metaphorical, symbolic concept. There's actual boundaries for God's will for Israel's land. But the, the, the land wasn't just promised as land. The land was promised as an eternal inheritance, eternal land. In Genesis 13:15, God promised that this land would belong to the descendants of Abraham forever. And so God has promised that the descendants of Abraham would have a specific land as a nation and this nation will last forever and ever. God made other promises to Abraham. He promised that, that he would give a ruler, he would give a king. Genesis twenty-two seventeen 17 speaks of a specific, singular seed or offspring of Abraham, one man who will be kingly, one man who will possess the gates of his enemies. Psalm 24 speaks of that man, this coming king, as the king of glory, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. God promised Israel that she would have a king in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. God stipulates what kind of king Israel must have, a king who obeys God and a king that God chooses. But God also promised in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel did not keep covenant love with God, if Israel was unfaithful, then he would punish her, he would exile her. Ultimately, Israel wanted a worldly king, they wanted a strong man to fight their battles for them. And so God used the prophet Samuel to choose Saul. From a human standpoint, the right choice. The biggest and tallest man in Israel. A a king like Israel wanted, not a king like God wanted. So God chose for Israel a king who would prove to be a coward. Who could be found hiding on some occasions. A king who would not fight the Philistine Goliath. When the armies of the Philistines threatened Israel... All of this to demonstrate that a king after God's own heart who loves and trusts God and would defend the very name and the honor of God at all costs, that was the real king that God wanted for Israel. And so when Saul was cowering, offering to pay others to fight the Philistine giant Goliath, a boy named David, the son of Jesse, he came forward and he fought Goliath and he fought by faith and for the honor of God. In fact, first. Samuel 17, 45 through 47, records that not only would David kill Goliath, David told Goliath in advance that he was going to do it. And he was going to do it by God's power, quote, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And of course, this is David. In the previous chapter, in 1 Samuel 16, at God's direction, in a very quiet ceremony, Samuel anointed David the next king of Israel, a man that... God said was a man after his heart. God promised David in Second Samuel 7 that the king of Israel who would reign forever would come from him, would be a Davidic king. Now, I give you all of this history because we have a bunch of things seemingly all jumbled up here. You have first the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham that from his body would come a nation who would possess the promised land forever And from Abraham would come this singular seed who in kingly fashion would possess the gates of his enemies. This was an unconditional promise. It is going to happen. But then mixed in there, you have the Mosaic covenant or the Israelite covenant. This is a conditional promise. A conditional promise that God would bless Israel in all her ways in the land. Only if she was faithful to covenant love and obedience. And God would give a king, but the king must be obedient as well. And if Israel did not fulfill covenant love, then ultimately God would exile her to a foreign land. And just to throw in one more variable, you have the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, that this nation of Israel would have a king descended from King David, who would fulfill all righteousness and would reign forever and ever and ever in the land of Israel. So how can all of those things be true at the same time? David had a son. Solomon and Solomon laid the groundwork for the failure of the kingdom of Israel by his own covenant disloyalty. Solomon's son Rehoboam lost the kingdom in just 24 months with 10 tribes splitting to the north and 2 staying to the south. Now there's two kingdoms. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, were were decimated by Assyria in judgment for her covenant treachery. And now all that was left of Israel was the the tiny southern kingdom of Judah. And she was hanging on by a thread. Morally, she was bankrupt. Religiously, she was empty. And there were only a few, precious few faithful, continuing in true faith in God. The prophet Habakkuk cried out to God about the injustice in the land, the covenant treachery. Habakkuk 1:2, the prophet cries out, Oh Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And so God answered in Habakkuk 1, he promised to fix the problem, but not in the way Habakkuk expected. God promised that conquest and exile was coming. He promised Habakkuk that true to his word to Israel 800 years earlier, when he gave this warning to them in Deuteronomy 28, the Babylonians were coming and they were going to decimate Israel and carry off many of her people In 605 B.C., Babylon came and carried off the best and brightest of Israel. In 597, they came back and did it again. And finally, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and dealt the final blow. He destroyed Jerusalem. He wiped out the land. He killed the livestock, cut down the trees. He made the land basically unlivable. And right during that time, the prophet Jeremiah, after years and years of warning Judah... Witness the destruction of Jerusalem and he records his grief and his anguish in the book of Lamentations chapter one verse one how lonely sits the city that was full of people how like a widow she be, has become she who is great among the nations she who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. In fact, Jeremiah pictures himself as Jerusalem, utterly destroyed. Lamentations 3, 1 through 6, he has felt the wrath of God. God has broken his bones. God has made him to dwell in utter darkness. And further in chapter 3, he describes God as a bear waiting to tear him to pieces. And it has happened. Now this city that once was a princess among all cities is now a ghost town. And Jeremiah is devastated. Israel is gone. But then Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What was Jeremiah's hope? His only hope was the fact that God is faithful. That God made promises and God always keeps his promises His hope with this was that these three covenants—the Abrahamic covenant, and and the Davidic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant—they must all be working together somehow that if God promised Abraham a nation with a king forever and ever in the promised land, an unconditional promise, and that if God promised Israel in the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, a conditional promise that blessing would remain as long as Israel was faithful, but if they disobeyed, the nation would be destroyed, and, and that if God promised unconditionally to King David that his offspring would defeat all of Israel's enemies and would reign over Israel forever and ever, the only conclusion that is logical is that God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Why? Because great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. And all over the Old Testament, Hosea 3, Joel 2, Amos 9, the book of Obadiah, Micah 4, Zephaniah, and in particular, the prophet Jeremiah, we see countless promises to Israel that shall be restored as the kingdom of Israel. Jeremiah 25 and 29 contain the specific promise that the exile will only last 70 years before a remnant of Jews are allowed to return to, to Judah to what is left of what was once the great kingdom of Israel. And as we saw when we began Ezra and Nehemiah, the drama of the return of Israel to her land begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 538 B.C., some 68 years after the first exiles were taken, and in two more years, the foundation of the temple of Jerusalem would be laid once again, bringing us to 70 years, just as Jeremiah prophesied. So why would God give this book of Ezra and Nehemiah to Israel? The story of their return. This is a history of God's faithfulness in the very recent past from the vantage point of the original readers. Ezra Nehemiah is proof that God has been loyal to his covenant with Israel as given through the Abrahamic covenant that he's keeping his promise to form them into a nation forever. But the big question and the gigantic surprise of Ezra Nehemiah is the question, would Israel be able to be faithful this time or would something new have to happen? And we saw that the people made a great start, even getting the foundation of the temple built very shortly after arriving. But as you read Ezra and Nehemiah, what we're finding is that something new is going to have to happen. There's going to have to be a new direction, because the people already begin falling into rebellion and sin. They continue abandoning God's law and the prescribed worship of God and ultimately Nehemiah, at the very end of Ezra Nehemiah, the whole book ends with Nehemiah praying a prayer, Remember me, O my God, for good. Meaning, we have failed. Remember me in the future. Save me. Why does he pray that prayer? Because although God has brought this remnant of around 50,000 back, They still had hearts of stone as a people. Something new would have to happen. The kingdom of Israel had not yet come. The people were still under Persian rule. They weren't independent. This would shift to Greek rule, which would shift to Egyptian rule, which would shift to Syrian rule. A very, very brief period of independence. And then in 63 BC, Roman rule came and it came to stay. Until Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. The Lord Jesus Christ was born under Roman rule. He proclaimed in Matthew 15 that He came to save the lost sheep of Israel, not from their political enslavement, but from their enslavement to their own sin. He came to save them from their sins. He came to be the mediator of the new covenant as promised by God in Jeremiah 31. So where does the end of Ezra and Nehemiah leave us? Because it starts with a bang, and it ends with a fizzle. It leaves us needing to keep reading in our Bibles, doesn't it? That the kingdom has not yet come. And so Jesus, in fact, even commanded us to pray, your kingdom come, because it hasn't come yet. Jesus already fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant, By being a perfect law keeper on behalf of all who have placed their faith in him. That's done. That's finished. That's complete. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant by bringing Israel back permanently with new hearts by the Spirit of God. That will happen in the future. And he fulfills the Davidic covenant by ruling on the throne of his ancestor, King David. And so what Ezra Nehemiah does is it leaves us still yearning for the coming kingdom of Christ. But it is coming. It is coming. But what Ezra and Nehemiah does for us, and the reason we're calling this series Great is Thy Faithfulness, is that the focus for us here is that even though this attempt at reestablishing the kingdom of Israel would ultimately fail, God is faithful in the midst of waiting for the kingdom plan to be completed. That in the day-to-day and year-to-year and decade-to-decade lives of the faithful, God is faithful to them. And in fact, he's working providentially, as we'll see tonight. Now, let me just give you a couple of sentences about the providence of God. This is an important concept. The providence of God speaks of his sovereign behind the scenes work. The things that you don't see, the, the curtain drawn back on heaven. The providence of God speaks to the sovereign behind the scenes working of God to bring about his plan and his will In the big picture, in all of creation, in the smaller picture, in all of his redemptive plan throughout history, and yes, in your individual life. This is a very encouraging topic to me because this is really an outline of our lives. How do we see the providence of God working, or to ask the question in a different way, what does it mean to walk by faith? Simple two-part answer. Here's part one. Very, very original. Trust and obey. I've never heard that phrase, have you? Trust and obey. That's the first part to the answer. What does it mean to walk by faith? Now, we're back up to speed with Ezra and Nehemiah. The Jews in Judea, they had been placed under a stop-all-work order from the Persian king Ahasuerus and then Artaxerxes and Darius from about 536 all the way to the time of Ezra 5, which is 520 BC, precisely. So they quit. They stopped. They laid the foundation of the temple, but they were ordered to quit, and so they did. We saw in Ezra 4 that the opponents of the Jews even hired lawyers to frustrate the Jews' cause before the kings to to make it an illegal act to continue work on the temple, And this is discouraging because it was King Cyrus of Persia who told him to go in the first place. We also know that the order was enforced militarily in chapter 4, verse 23. What does this mean? It means the previous work on the foundation of the temple and on the city walls. It was wrecked. It was destroyed. It wasn't just stopped. It was undone. From a human vantage point, the cause of reestablishing the worship of God by God's people in Jerusalem, the cause of rebuilding the capital city of God's people was now a hopeless cause. This is just a few thousand Jews. They didn't have the might. They didn't have the strength to fight the entire Persian empire. So an order from a Persian king to completely stop meant that they stopped. Enter Haggai and Zechariah. Ezra 5 verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Haggai came back with the original group of Jews of exiles as recorded in Ezra 2. He simply called the prophet, meaning that he was the leader of the two with the younger Zechariah following his lead. Zechariah is listed as the son of Edo, but uh, Zechariah 1 verse 1 clarifies that Edo was actually his grandfather. This was a very, a, a very normal biblical practice to skip generations in genealogies. But Zechariah is listed here as the son of Edo to give a very clear emphasis. Edo was one of the priests who returned with Zerubbabel to Jerusalem back in 537, 536 or so. Uh, Nehemiah 12 4 tells us this. But there's two important reasons for this listing of Edo as Zechariah's father. First of all, Zechariah, we see the emphasis here, comes from a priestly family. And so God using him, using one of the the spokesmen for God was very significant. And second, it also tells us that Zechariah was very, very young at the time of his ministry. And yet in his prophecy, he gives some of the most stunning views of Israel's glorious history in all of the Bible. A very, very young man, probably a late teenager to early 20s. Now, the last message we did in this series, I walked through every single chapter of both Haggai and Zechariah. I'm not going to do that again, but there's one important detail I want to relive from the book of Haggai. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you about it. Haggai is a series of sermons, a series of messages that we see in two chapters. Now, without rehashing the chronology of all the events in in overwhelming detail for us, it's important to remember... Back in Ezra 4, if you recall, it contained some Bible time traveling, if you will, that we actually see a time span of many years in Ezra 4, illustrating the people's reluctance to restart the building of the temple. But the one fact I want to relive from Haggai's messages is that only one of his sermons, the first one, only one was given actually before the temple work got started. Now, why is this important? Because the kicker here is the fact that when the order to stop work had been given by the Persian king, the Jews had given up. And you recall, they returned from Babylon with all kinds of wealth, all kinds of money, all kinds of gold and silver and resources. And these were to be used to rebuild the temple of God. But when the stop work order came, they just said, okay. And Haggai 1 tells us something. The first message, they gave up. They went out into the country And they used all the wealth and the money and the resources they brought from Babylon for temple construction to build themselves fabulous new homes. What Haggai calls paneled houses, solid wood walls, beautiful homes. And as a result, through the prophet Haggai, they were shown that this is why they were suddenly poor and unable to feed and clothe themselves. Why? Why? Because they let the order of a human king supersede the order of the divine king. They got their priorities mixed up. Haggai's message was that God will not bless you until you trust and obey. God will not bless you. They saw God's provision for them dry up because they abandoned God's will for their lives. They they, they took the money and they ran. And so God said, I'm not going to provide for you. Not until you get your priorities straight. So have the people learned their lesson. Chapter 5, verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. They did learn their lesson. The rebuilding of the temple did begin. But not because the elders were waiting for some sort of human confirmation of permission but rather because the word of God through Haggai and Zechariah pointed them toward obedience. And of course, as so often happens in the midst of obedience, what begins immediately? Opposition and problems. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Tatanai was the Persian appointed governor of Judea, the province beyond the river, Euphrates. He was responsible to report back to the king everything happening in the province. And so he suspiciously questions the Jews and perhaps even to intimidate them, gathers a list of all the leaders. I'll need to know everybody involved with this construction project. But Tatanai was a governor under an all-powerful, tyrannical, despotic king. And this king was a law unto himself. And so Tatanai had a problem. Like all bureaucrats, he was trying to please everyone, particularly his boss. And So here's his problem. If the Jews were not supposed to be rebuilding the temple and the city, and he stopped them, he would be seen as a loyal governor. Good news. But if the Jews were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, but he stopped them, he could be in hot water with the Persian king. So Tatanai, like a good bureaucrat, plays it safe and creates a paper trail for himself. He writes a letter. He sends a letter of inquiry to the king. And in fact, this letter is so important that the Holy Spirit designated that it's it's part of the inspired text of Scripture. We'll read the letter in a moment. But first, we have to pause to see something rare that we don't get to see in Scripture that often. And that is a a behind-the-scenes look at the providence of God. The the curtain opening and seeing the workings of heaven behind the scenes. Persian governors such as Tatanai, because it was their job to gather information on behalf of the kings, they had a, a nickname. They weren't just called governors. They were called, and everybody knew them as this. They were called the eye of the king. These governors were the eye of the king. And with that knowledge, with that understanding, that Tat and I would have been called the eye of the king, we get the real power and the real control and the real impetus behind all these events. Ezra 5, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So from a human vantage point, Tatanai was playing it safe by writing the king a letter of inquiry before making any moves. But in the heavenly control room above, it wasn't the eye of the king of Persia controlling events. It was the eye of the God of the Jews that was upon each and every detail. Everything happening was because of him. But this is the omniscient view of the author, we call it. The elders of the Jews who had redetermined to obey the Lord in rebuilding the temple, even at great risk to themselves and to other Jews. What was their perspective? What did they know? They didn't have this perspective. They, They didn't read Ezra 5, verse 5. They didn't have that yet. All they knew was that it was time to trust and obey. That's all they had. And what were they trusting and obeying? They were trusting and obeying the words of Haggai and Zechariah that thus saith the Lord, obey me. And they did. I want to give us three important lessons that we can learn from this first part of what it means to walk by faith, to trust and obey. This is really one of the core principles of living the Christian life. And I'd like to just camp on this for a bit. The first lesson is that when you intentionally revolve your life around kingdom priorities, God will fulfill his purposes through you. That when you intentionally revolve your life around kingdom priorities, God will fulfill his purposes through you. You can count on it. You can look for it. What does this mean? It means that you can pick any area of your life addressed in Scripture, which is all of them, and you can center That life, that area of life around kingdom priorities versus just trying to get God to do things for you for your own sake. And this is really the difference in perspective between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. We don't ask the Lord to help us just because we want help. We ask for his help centered around kingdom priorities. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you're a business owner, yes, you may pray, Lord, make my business prosper. Amen. And that's perfectly fine if you want to do that. But if that's the extent of your thinking, what you've really done is fallen into the trap of cultural Christianity that sees faith in Christ as some sort of addition, some sort of addendum, some sort of appendix to add on to my life. That God is here to make my plans happen. Lord, make my business prosper. Instead, This is what the Christian that's centering his life on kingdom priorities prays. Lord, prosper my business in order that I might first and foremost provide for my family because that's what you've called me to do. But I also pray to be a good and godly witness for the gospel to my employees and and customers. Lord, I also pray for courage to be faithful in the onslaught of political correctness and totalitarian godlessness that might threaten my courage to stand for Christ. Lord, as you prosper my business, I desire to greatly support the work of the kingdom. Let me trust you even as I obey you. Lord, prosper my business because Grace Bible Church just added two missionaries and I want to help them. You see the difference? This isn't just praying to tack God's will and God's blessing onto your will. It is to center everything on kingdom priorities. Let me give you another example. If you're a wife, you may pray, Lord, help my marriage so that I can enjoy my life more. Okay? Or you can pray, Lord, make me the woman you would have me to be. Help me this day to honor my Savior who is my heavenly husband by having a truly humble and submissive heart toward my husband. Help me to love him and to cherish him, to honor him as you've commanded Lord, I know that my children are watching and that my brothers and sisters in Christ are are counting on a good example to encourage them as well. And Lord, with godlessness so rampant in human relationships today, let me be different. Let me be a light all for your glory and for your sake. Let me trust you even as I obey you. And when your life revolves around kingdom priorities, I promise you God will fulfill his purposes through you. He will the second application. And I'm going to speak this in the negative because I think it's important sometimes just to be blunt. It is dishonoring to the Lord to attempt to live safely and without risk at all times. It is dishonoring to the Lord to attempt to live safely and without risk at all times. From a human perspective, what the Jews did in Ezra 5, receiving a cease and desist order. And so they used their resources to go build themselves houses. Uh, From what you could see with your eyes, that's a reasonable decision. Okay, we don't want to make the government mad, so we'll use these resources and go build houses. It was a safe decision. It was a risk-free decision. But you see, the riskiest thing you can ever do is step foot outside of God's will. Haggai's rebuke of them and the Jews' subsequent decision to become obedient again, to restart building the temple by faith, indicated God's displeasure. I want to be very clear about this. Obedience to the word of God often means doing that what does not seem safe. It means doing what doesn't mitigate risk. But if your life is characterized by safety and mitigating risk, that's not a life of faith. For a husband to love his wife without regard for what he may or may not receive in return, that's a life of faith. That's not safe. For a wife to honor and respect a sinful man who may or may not ever soften up and grow up in godliness, that's a life of faith. That's not safe. For a man to give to the work of the kingdom in a time when gasoline costs more than milk, that's not a life of safety. That's faith. For a man to spend time with his family, even though his budget is tight and it's tempting to work 90 hours a week. That's a life of faith. It's not safe. For Grace Bible Church to purchase a building that looks like a former lumber yard, because it's a former lumber yard. And believe that God can be honored and glorified and souls saved here. That's a life of faith. That's not safe. We don't operate in safety. You know how God got the Jews to learn how to be unsafe. He gave them the Sabbath. They spent 400 years working seven days a week. And he made them do something that was completely contrary to their nature. And that was to take a day off and trust the Lord. And you remember what a lot of them did when this first started? That they started trying to to, to, uh, gather a a whole bunch of extra uh, of the manna that was coming down. and, And what would happen? It would go bad. If they didn't trust the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How do you want your life to end? I don't mean the method. That's not up to you. That's the Lord's will. The Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews calls the Christian life a race. How do you want to cross the finish line? Some Christians want to cross the finish line in relief that they played it safe. Whew, I made it. Nothing too bad happened. Here's what you ought to want. You ought to want to cross the finish line with your feet on fire. You ought to cross the finish line running across going, Woo, that was incredible. What a race. Looking back on the countless times that you trusted and you obeyed the Lord and you look back on your life and you say, Look how God got me out of this. Look how God helped me here. I was about to go off a cliff here and he saved me. I didn't even know the cliff was there. Look at all the prayers he's answered And you cross the finish line in victory, not having played it safe, but having lived by faith. Don't play it safe. There's one more application. Take this straight from our text. The prophets of God go with you as you trust and obey. The prophets of God go with you as you trust and obey. Did you see that tender phrase at the end of verse 2? And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Remember, most of the messages of Haggai and Zechariah were given while they had already restarted building the temple. They were were receiving these incredible sermons. They heard from Haggai chapter 2, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. They heard from Haggai chapter 2, telling Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. And of course, from Zechariah, they heard from the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. They heard the visions of the coming victory of Israel, the coming of the king of all the kings who would reign from Jerusalem someday. Wouldn't it be great to have prophets of God with you as you trust and obey? But we do, don't we? We do. After all the glorious instructions for the church at Corinth, Paul ends his first letter My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And as God's appointed representative, we sense the love of God expressed through the love of our beloved brother Paul. One that we've never met and yet he's with us every day, isn't he? Don't you get the encouraging smile from our brother Peter when he ends his first letter reminding all of us that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Can't you almost picture the joy of what it would be like for a little old man named the Apostle John to amble into the back door here? Just as he told the recipients of Second John, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. These apostles, these prophets of God, these brothers, they're our brothers. And they have left their inspired commands and encouragements with us to be a lamp shining in a dark place. And in fact, that was Peter's encouragement about the word of God. Second Peter 1, 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, as the prophets of God go with me, what I'm actually taking are the very words of the Spirit of God. That's encouraging. So what does that tell us we can do? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to what? Trust and obey. I want that to stay in your mind. The first part of the answer to the question, what does it mean to walk by faith? Trust and obey. The second part of the answer to that question, what does it mean to walk by faith? Expect to see God work. Expect to see God work. Even when life is difficult. Even when things you didn't possibly imagine would happen to you. Even when suffering hurts Expect to see God work. Now we see the bureaucratic, careful, and cautious letter from Tatanai. And this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I'd like to take time to read this letter. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozenai and his associates, the governor who were in the province beyond the river, sent it to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. What is Tatani and I doing? Just in case you ordered this, just letting you know it's going really well. But just in case you didn't order this... Verse 9, then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. And listen to the faith, listen to trusting and obeying. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished." Therefore, if it seems good to the king, this is Tatanai speaking again, let search be made in the royal archives here in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So just to summarize this long letter here, what's happening here? Tatanai's reported that the temple is being built. The Jews were doing a great job. They were doing it well. He reported that he'd investigated by what authority the Jews were rebuilding in verse 9. Verses 11 through 16 give the detailed answer that the Jews had given to Tatanai. And you notice that the emphasis is that they're serving the God of heaven and earth. They are clearly serving only the Lord. And the Jews were very careful in their answer. They carefully answered that they were rebuilding where the previous temple had built, not been built. Now, why is that so important? That this isn't a new temple altogether. This was important because they're falling in line with the Persian expansion policy of rebuilding temples of conquered peoples, not building new ones. And so they're basically saying we're doing exactly what the Persian expansion policy would require. And they also carefully pointed out that all the silver and gold temple articles had been decreed by Cyrus to be returned to the reconstructed temple. And so Tatanai's basic request in verse seventeen is search the archives of the royal decrees to test the information that has been given. Now, given the fact that letters took weeks or months to be delivered and for answers to come back, it is an incredible and a remarkable act of faith that the Jews, confident that they're obeying the Lord, confident that they are doing what God's commanded. It's a remarkable act that they continued to diligently and faithfully rebuild. And then in Ezra chapter 6, the letter is delivered to Darius, the current king, and Tatanai's request is granted. The archives are searched, and lo and behold, the decree of Cyrus, which had been made 18 or 19 years earlier, has been found. And every detail reported by the Jewish leaders to Tatanai checks out to the last word. And by the way, what's the biggest victory here? Confirmation in verse 4 of chapter 6 that Persia was supposed to pay for this project. Remember what happened to all the money and the wealth? They built houses with it. They didn't have any money. But Darius says, we're paying for it. And look what God does. This is the providence of God at work. Not only does Tatanai receive confirmation that the work should continue, King Darius becomes downright protective of the Jews in numerous ways. He goes to bat for them. First, he warns Tatanai to not get in the way. Ezra 6, verse 6. Now, therefore, this is Darius writing. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. The second way Darius becomes protective is he... Decrees that is to make sure the Jews get their resources immediately without delay. What would have? What could have been one of his tactics? One of his tactics could have been to say, "Sure, I'll obey," but sadly they don't have any money right now. So Darius makes sure that that's not the case. Verse eight. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Translation, what you're usually skimming off the top, Tatanai, you're going to use that to rebuild their temple. It's The third way the king was protective, Tatanai was in no way to interfere with the worship of Yahweh by God's people. What is this? This is separation of church and state. Chapter 6, verse 9, And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And one more way that Darius becomes protective he threatens Tatanai and anyone who would go against him in typical, horrific, ancient Near Eastern fashion. Verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. He sounds like a believer, doesn't he? He doesn't give any evidence of being a believer, but God providentially has turned the heart. Proverbs 21 talks about this, turns the heart of the king. To do his will. And Darius, for some reason that he doesn't even know, becomes downright protective of the Jews. And he says, you are going to make sure this happens, Tatanai. And how motivated do you think old Tatanai was? Verse 13. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbozenai, and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Like a good bureaucrat. He fell in line. We get a one-verse summary of the providence of God. This is a phenomenal verse. Verse 14, follow along with me. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. What is that? Trust and obey. And... They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. What is that? Expect to see God's work. You expect it. What did the Jews know? All they knew from their standpoint was we have the word of God from Haggai and Zechariah. We must obey. That's all they knew. But from heaven's standpoint, the temple was finished Because God's hand was turning the hearts of kings toward his people. I'll say it again. The providence of God is one of the most exciting parts of living the Christian life. It is absolutely thrilling. And so I have a question for you. You basically have two choices on how to live the Christian life. And I suppose we all act out one of these choices at various times. But here's my question. Which one do you want to be? Choice number one. Thank you. Choice number one. Be what some have called the pothole Christian. The pothole Christian is the Christian who looks ahead. And his favorite phrase is, oh no. Because all he can see are all the potential potholes ahead. Which in fact can lead him to stop and to play it safe. The pothole Christian. Or you can be what some have called the destination Christian. The destination Christian is the Christian who looks ahead, fully knowing the potholes are there. But his favorite phrase is, I can hardly wait to see how God works this out this time, because he's seen it so many times before. And he presses the accelerator, and he drives forward in obedience to the word of God. The idea, if you want to continue the metaphor of the Christian life as, as driving on this road, the idea is to not get your vehicle across the finish line in perfect condition. Whew, I avoided all the potholes. I changed the oil at just the right time. The paint job is perfect. No, the idea is for the vehicle known as your life to get across the finish line on fire. You jump out and look and like, whoo, we made it. Praise the Lord. And yeah, you hit some of those potholes going full speed, but you trusted the Lord. You trusted him. Here's a summary from Ezra 5 and 6 of how to do biblical counseling. You ready for this? In one minute or less. How to do biblical counseling. What does the word of God say? Do that. Trust and obey. Don't worry about the outcome. What does that mean? Expect to see God work. He might not work the way you want him to, but he will work. You know what often makes counseling take so long? Trying to convince the believer to trust and obey. To just trust the Lord with an abiding peace that obedience is always the only option that you might observe and build a long, legendary history of God's mighty works in your life. The reason counseling often takes so long is because it takes time to convince the Christian that results are not their worry. Obedience is. You see, when the Lord Jesus provided for your salvation at the cross, when the grace of God was applied to your sin debt, when it completed your reconciliation with God, Jesus also promised you something. He promised that he would never leave you, that he would never forsake you, but they also insist on in obedience and on trust as the precursor to his providential work. I want to ask one last question. If someone were to write your life story, could you fill that book with accounts of God's amazing providential workings? How his providence as you sought him with kingdom priority goals was absolutely stunning. Could you think back even now on times the Lord has sovereignly orchestrated events in your life in a magnificent fashion? Could I... Can I just encourage you, don't arrive in heaven with countless stories of how you played it safe. How you decided that your way, which is comfortable, was safer than obeying the Lord by faith. That there was nothing in life that you really ever begged God for. Nothing in life that you trembled before the Lord for. Arrive in heaven with war stories. Arrive in heaven with... With stories about how you obeyed, despite not being able to see the outcome. Despite knowing that this was going to be hard. Despite knowing that suffering was coming because of the choices you were about to make in obedience to the Lord. Arrive with war stories about how the Lord providentially worked behind the scenes in heaven. Why? Because the eye of the Lord is upon you. The eye of the Lord is upon you. We love this hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I, I like this verse. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our deep yearning and our desire to not be Christians who are careful and safe in the sense of only doing that which we can see. Lord, we want to be believers who drop to our knees asking for great and mighty things, begging you for help, and seeing you work providentially in ways that make us marvel, in ways that give glory to our Savior, Jesus. Lord, we would be believers that would take risks for the sake of the kingdom, that would take risks for the sake of the gospel, that would take risks for the sake of obedience as husbands and wives and children, employers, employees. Lord, we saw a couple of years ago that by your providential act, you divided the church of Jesus Christ into those who would take no risks. And who would dare not speak the name of Jesus when the government says not to. And those who said, we will obey, we will not play it safe. Lord, that's the life that we desire. A life of risk. A life of dropping to our knees on a daily basis, asking to see you work. That as we trust and obey, we can expect to see your providential hand because the eye of the Lord is upon us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.